So it's a pleasure to be sitting down this morning with Matt and Andy Mullins, co-founders of privately owned Melbourne-based hospitality business Sandhill Road Group. Matt and Andy, thanks again for your time this morning. I wanted to start with, uh, you know, looking backwards over the past, say, 15 or 18 months in particular. Andy, take us through the, the challenges that have presented themselves and then how you've sort of been able to navigate the business through those challenges. Well, big question to, to d d dive into, isn't it? But, um, but uh, I, th I think the, um, this would be harder if it happened again in three or four years because you'd, rem you'd remember how hard it was. But to be honest, the, the daily survival and in first understanding what is happening and how do you shut down a business uh, in, in, in a city that's so renowned for its hospitality. Um, just the shock, I think, of that took, took, took a little while to process. And then, then the logistical elements which our team swung into, which is actually packing down uh, an entire group, an entire city. Um, it, at that point, I think it was the entire country and more broadly the yep. entire world. So to, to, have, to have lived through that with so little certainty on, on how this was going to end and, and would it ever end, um, I, I think really our key was to, was to bring everything internal and, and stop listening to, to the noise out there. There was a, there was a lot of um, well-founded well hysteria. Um, there was a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, and really our priority was over and above um, our own um, wives, children and families was the family of Santa Road, which was getting, getting people through the understanding that they weren't going to be working and we couldn't tell them when they would. At that stage, um, various elements of not even leaving your home. I mean, that was that was pretty scary. So, to be honest, we um, I think the key plank in all of that was was communications, and we've just got an amazing, um, you know, I, I suppose everyone says it, but genuinely an extraordinary team who really took care of of, of our people and took care of each other. And most of the time, that was through really simple, clear communications. This is this is what we know. This is what you need to know. This is how we can help you. Uh, those who reach need. out to us, talk to us. Yeah. We're 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 all always here. Yeah. Um, and like simple things like that. And, and then and then as the t as time went by and as as the days became weeks and then months, months. and then ultimately <laughs> you know over a year where we, we were not allowed to work here in Melbourne. Um, uh, you know we started formalising those processes where we could we could we could create forums online where we could bring our people together to let them have something approaching a social experience um, that took them away from their living room or the kitchen or wherever they had or, spent. Or, or really at that stage too have them do it in their living room because that's all they were allowed to do. So we well, had, sorry, we had yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It took them virtually away from the living room into into a, a social environment. To yeah, get so you've got a guy like yeah. Matt, Matt Skinner... Um, Who's doing you know wine tasting from from Dan Murphy's or Liquorland with six dollar bottles of of you know, Italian red wine and they are just so incredibly engaging and and the team that put that together was was uh, was working their asses off really for the last eighteen months. They're you think God bottle shops were essential. Yeah, thank, thank God the purchase of alcohol was essential because otherwise yeah. we would have had nothing, right? But, <laughs> but, but even as you um, unpack this stuff, it's just surreal to to think that all really happened, and now it's all looking like it might be over. But like an traumatic experience, I think you just you just survive it and try to forget it. Um, uh, along the way, there's been an enormous amount of lessons learnt, though, and, and hopefully on the other side of this, we're we're, we're better people, um, you know, better citizens, better business people, better better family members. So there's a there's a lot of learning to do. Andy, I don't know if you remember this, but but like going going back to the very beginning of this whole debacle, we were I remember sitting around our table in the office 
um, as it was becoming clear that you know we were we were heading towards something called a lockdown, things called social distancing, um, you know, like terms that just made no sense to any of us at the time, even though we know them all so intimately now. But you know, they were really crazy ideas back then, and I remember sitting around with with our team of you know, partners, right, talking about how the idea that every business in the country would be shut down for weeks, let alone months, because our assumption, and this is the crazy thing, right, our assumption was that every business would be the same. So our assumption was if they're locking us down, they're locking everyone down. Yeah. Like, you know, there's, there's no way there's a difference here, right? There's no way some businesses thrive while others are dead. Um, you know, if we're locked down, we're all locked down. And then it slowly started dawning on us. Oh, no, 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 no. What's going to happen here is we're going to be locked down and everyone else... As in hospitality. Gets, yep. As in hosp- hospitality. Yep. And everyone else, not everyone, most other people get to keep working. And it was like, I can't tell you... Like, that, that, no resentment, right? That, that, thank God others kept working, right? Because that, that's what kept our economy afloat and is now help, helping to restore businesses like ours to some kind of normalcy. But just the shock... Like just, it, it was it was so extraordinary, as it started to dawn on us that that in fact you know there were going to be massive losers in in this whole thing, and massive winners, mm. and it was and you know we had no idea at the start that we were the losers, mm. we had no idea. It's obvious now looking back, but it, it was just so extraordinary. It's good surreal for sure. Yeah. And when you do look back on that period, Matt, I'm, I'm interested to get an, a, an understanding of how, how did you look at the business through a different eye given or different set of eyes given you've had so long to sort of reflect on what's worked, what hasn't worked and, and therefore taking those learnings, how do you think you're going to position the business moving forward? Yeah, well, well listen, yeah, we did. So th- there, were, there were layers of shock and, um, and grief and anxiety and depression that was that was, you know that was coming and going in waves uh, through all of us. You know, my partners, my, my family, uh, our staff. Uh, you know, when you experience anything traumatic like that, and so you know, our response to our business wasn't immediate, other than to, to say, right, let, let's let's do what we have to do, which is shut our business down. That's a big, big, big job. Any little money, like shutting down eight pubs, is an almighty task. Laying off. 700 staff is an almighty task. Like, it, it was really hard to do. So, you know, we were all very busy for weeks making that happen. And then we could start turning our mind, and in fact, it was only a matter of a week or two, started turning our mind to, okay, well, what else do we do here other than just shut everything down and, you know, and put our entire company to sleep and, and, and hope that there'll be something left to awaken one day. And our, our partner, Andrew... Uh, Andrew Lark, who is an extraordinary uh, businessman in, in his own right, um, putting aside everything he's done here at Sand Hill Road with us. But he very quickly switched into uh, a new gear and it was it was amazing to watch, shocking in its own right actually, but because, you know, we were, we were, most of us were still in, in like a, a really quite distraught state, you know, like working as hard as we can during the day to keep things moving and then at night just just collapsing around the shock of it all, um, following the news like we all were um, as things got worse and worse and worse. But in amongst all that, Andrew turned his mind to the future. And so he, I remember him sending an email out and then calling it to us to explain it. He, he said to us all, right, I, I want ideas like now about 
what the company should look like when we come back to life. Like, you know, I, I want to I want to take this opportunity to really rethink what we do. This is the moment to do that. And I thought, I oh, actually, you know, that, that's pretty cool. That's a good idea. That's that's really good thinking. I'll definitely I'll definitely turn my mind to that over the, over the next few weeks and months. Um, and and you know, there's got to be a couple of ideas that I could throw in the mix there. And then he went on to say, I want 50 ideas from each of you, and I want them tomorrow night. And I'm like, dude, I haven't slept in a week. Like, I haven't eaten in a week. I, uh, I mean, I'm living on beer. Wow. Okay. And in fact, it was it was pure genius. Like he was right. A, this was the moment. Like the moment when when we were in such um, such flux. It was absolutely the moment um, to turn all of our minds to to what we could do differently and better in the future. It was a great idea to turn our minds to the future at all. Like So that in itself was very, very clever. And he was quite right to say, I want 50 ideas from you because one or two won't cut it. And he was absolutely right to say, and by the way, don't sit around wasting any time. Like, let's go. I want them tomorrow night. And, and it was were, wonderful. What were some of those ideas without sort of oh, talking? Everything, everything from um, <laughs> uh, well, literally everything from supply chain um, through to uh, managing uh, real estate, um, understanding what we were as a business, how do we become more efficient, how do we at the same time as look for operational efficiencies, also look for revenue generating, and if those two marry, um, hey, you've got a, you've got a vastly. A recalibrated business. Um, we looked intensely at capex um, it, through the group. So whilst we've got this time, which we still hoped was only a few weeks, turned out to be eighteen months. But while we've got that time, and that set off a um, a really aggressive. So if you look back on it now, look back on those those conversations that happened so long ago. Um, in the last uh, twelve months, while we've been you know shut. Um, we've done an enormous renovation at Garden State Hotel. We've completely renovated the back tower. You know, in, 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 you're talking millions. We have done the rooftop at Richmond Club um, in the same same time. We've uh, just started a work now on Bridge Hotel. So everything from the tiny little details, how could you do something better or why do you do something at all, to the bigger questions of, of how do we how do we come out of this um, you know, really firing. And to be honest, once you've got a, once you've got a list that can then form... Um, a vision and then a compass to, to go and achieve that, then you can start to put the support structures around us that were critical to that happening or not and primarily was was the banking relationship. So to know during that time, I think, and, and anyone who is listening and who owns a business was probably very nervous about surviving and that was a lot of talk. Um, you, know, you couldn't avoid the news, unfortunately. It was everywhere. Every conversation in the co- in coffee um, stores or the parks were, were about COVID. So the, the critical piece for us was um, getting a really good understanding as quickly as we could about where our bank, um, Commonwealth Bank, stood. And um, I'm not... A paid promoter of them, they are absolutely awesome. Um, the way that they 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 came in around us, the clear vision, the the simple um, view they had on us, and not only would we survive, but we'd thrive out of this. So give us your ideas, and then to be able to give them the ideas yeah. to say, hey, that's what we've been thinking about, and then for them to so quickly say, this is what this is how you're going to pull out of this. This is what you guys need. This is your DNA. And I think that is. COVID happened on or about our 20th anniversary in business yep. together. Yep. So 
we we've never we built a pub and a half we built a new pub every 18 months so every year and a half we open a new pub historically so to have that taken away from us we've got it we've got a risk it all mentality we always have we've always played with big stakes like the garden state hotel doing the sb rolling into the waterside which we'll talk about later but to not have that vision or compass or not have the autonomy to take control of your own destiny, that was really, that's when Matt talks about sort of anxiety. That, that was the depth of it for us, saying this, this isn't us. So once we, once we got the banking relationship and support, um, the confidence in that, once we um, knew that our team was sticking in, that was a massive one, that the, you know, the, the senior leaders were, were, were just so vested in coming out of this. That moves you from sort of anxiety, sort of depressive moods into a real, a real humility and out of why are these people being so nice to us? Why is everyone why is everyone standing with us so 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 strongly, stronger than they ever have? Why is the bank? And we, we kind of quickly realised, well, because we've got a great business, and and we're good at it, and we've got a good partnership, and it's in its twentieth year. Of course, the biggest test had to come now. Um, it was never going to be sail off into the sunset. That that wasn't our story. So I think once we once all that came together, which came off Andrew, um, starting with, hey, don't sit around, don't don't. Don't atrophy in this environment. Um, all these great things started to happen again amidst the worst of the worst. Because while we were finding new energy, um, and whilst we got through that first lockdown, which everyone knew, oh, thank God that's over. We didn't realise there was lockdown two, three, four, five, and six to come. <laughs> the last one was a seven-day lockdown that went for seventy-eight <laughs> days. I mean, but what got us through that was the fact that we did have a vision, we did have a compass, and we did have the support networks to go and achieve these things. So I think the proudest I ever felt of any renovation is the Garden State right now Mm -hmm. because that came when all the chips were on the table. That's when it was, how how strong are we really? Uh, what, what, What does it look like in the mirror when you look at that group and you stand in that place and you say, yeah, we built this during COVID. You know that's that's awesome. So, yeah, that's that that's that was a pretty pretty good moment from a pretty bad mm. one. But um, just rounding that all off, though, the way that we survived personally as partners was knowing that our staff are sitting in share houses or alone or interstate from their families, international from their families. Mm. So many of our staff who were the lifeblood of this company were sent home or sent interstate because the government wouldn't support them. Yeah. You know, specifically talking about hospitality staff here, that that just that actually fed an anger that, that we had, which was to get all this back up and running for them for their sake. Um, it just seemed so, dare I say, un-Australian to yeah. to take these people's taxes and to feed them. Melbourne is the greatest hospitality city um, in Australia and one of the greatest on earth. And for all the people that make that happen to treat them that way. Um, there was there was a building anger um, amongst us and the industry to um, to to make sure that uh, that those people weren't left behind. So get ourselves open and get them back to work as soon as we can. I want to ask yourself about that uh, particular topic, Matt. Labor shortages, obviously, as as Andy said, there's been so many hospitality workers and and workers in general, be they students or otherwise, that have left our shores because they got no support. Yep. How are you finding uh, the process of of attracting or retaining staff at the moment? We're getting there slowly. It's an enormous task. Uh, just quickly, sort of back to that point, a lot of people don't quite realise. You know, obviously, labour shortages is a thing that we're all dealing with in almost every business in in the economy, but none more so than 
than hospitality. And the reasons for that are actually quite varied, and it's not quite, it's not just as simple as 457s. Oh, that's a massive one. So 457 visa holders are those who've come from overseas to do jobs that Australians won't do, and it's a very real thing, by the way. It's it's not lip service. It's, you know, if, if every kitchen that we have in our company, in our, in our industry, could be filled with Australian chefs, mm. they would be. Um, it's it's way more expensive and way more challenging and way more difficult to bring 457s from somewhere else in the world to work in our kitchens. But we do it because we simply, like literally for 50 years, have not had enough chefs in our kitchens. Like, you know, we've had massive, massive, massive underemployment, so to speak, full employment in Australian kitchens for 50 years, right? Um, so all those 457 visa holders, in our case it was probably... Yeah, it was it was probably a third of our kitchen workforce. Uh, you know, it might have been fifty people. All of them were basically told by the federal government because they weren't included in JobKeeper, and then literally told by the prime minister, "It's time to go home." Mm-hmm. So you're not going to get anything in this country, like nothing. Doesn't matter that you live here. Doesn't matter you've been paying tax here for ten years. Doesn't matter that you are doing an essential job that no one else in this country will do. Doesn't matter that we're going to need every single one of you to get this economy running again. It's time for you to go home. Like, just staggering stuff. Anyway, um, so you had that problem, right? And, th- and that that cannot be solved in the near term. Cannot be solved. Uh, and then then what you had was, because JobKeeper excluded casual employees who hadn't been with the company for a year. So think about hospitality. Think about every bar person, every waiter you know in hospitality. And now think about how many of those will have been there for more than a year. Like, it just it just isn't the definition of a hospital worker. Like, they're, they're young, they're, they're moving, they're travelling, they're doing a, a few months' work over summer between university breaks or whatever else. They're trying a new job to see if it, it's right for them. You know, casuals just don't stick around in this industry for more than a year uh, very often and for all the right reasons. Like, that's totally fine. So no job keeper for them, nothing for them. Uh, they're in the dole queue. And so they had no choice but to go find work somewhere else. And they did. Yeah, no, so no, an entire and, generation. And, and not to be too, you know, but, mate, you can't give money to all those essential, really essential people when Harvey Norman needed that money too. Yeah, there is that. Nick Scarley needed all the money. I mean, no, come on, mate. You can't. That is true. That is true. It's something we've started to laugh about, Rob, because if, yeah, you, if, yeah. you, do, if you don't, there was a lot of tears going. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. get it. These, yeah. these, these profits are up. It's these guys are flying yeah, and they're getting yeah. JobKeeper? Yeah. What? Yeah, no, it's, right. it's just wild stuff. But and they're allowed to In any event, so... You could write that stuff. Like literally 100,000 Victorian hospital workers... Um, who had a job in hospo one day were in the dole queue the next day. Like, it was it was that, right? And they never came back because why would they? Why would you? Yeah. Why would you why come would back you come to back? a job like that, right? So, um, so our government very effectively told them to stop working hospitality and they did. And, uh, and now we're in this situation where uh, there were no 457s, all of our casuals left to go work somewhere else uh, and no one really wants to join the industry because, uh, because you know, you still don't know when you can be shut down. Like, yeah. if this om- Omicron is a problem, guess who's losing their jobs first, right? Yeah. Now, that, that sounds a bit dire, right? But, but that's just to give some context. That's the reason we're struggling. Um, and to counter all that what we can do is what we've always done best, which is to go out and say, hey, listen, this is an amazingly fun place to work. Yes, there is one downside. Um, if things really go bad in the world, again, which we all desperately hope won't happen, you know, it doesn't feel like there are more lockdowns coming in our life right now, but, hey, um, yeah, that's a downside. We get it. But um, but other than that, though, 
uh, and let's hope that's done with. But other than that, you know, you're never going to have as much fun stacking shelves in a supermarket. You're just not, right? Yeah. That's just like working behind a bar, waiting tables in a place like the ESPY is about as much fun as you can have working a casual job uh, in the world. And, and we just go out and keep selling that message. Uh, and then we make sure when, when everyone does turn up here to work and you know, we're bringing on 50 people a week at the moment. We used to bring on maybe five to ten people a week because we had a very you know, relatively steady workforce, in truth. Um, and so we, we're bringing on about 50 a week at the moment as we lead into the silly season. Wow. And, we, you know, we've obviously got a massive deficit to make up anyway, um, but but we'd be hiring now anyway because we're building up for December, January, February, which are really peak times. So, you know, the, 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 as well as the fact that we can't find enough staff yet, um, you know, which means... None of our pubs are open on Mondays, for instance. Most of them don't open Tuesday lunchtime, for instance. There are parts of this pub, the SP, that we can't open at the moment just because we haven't got enough staff to actually service service them. But you know, but apart from that, uh, we've now got a massive part of our organisation who is focused on finding, hiring, onboarding, inducting, and then training 50 people a week. And that in itself, like that, that, that is an enormous. That, that's that's like eight people working full time just to get our staff to the point where they can actually serve a beer safely and, uh, and you know, with a smile on their face. So it, j- just, the, just the layers of shit you've got to deal with, <laughs> things you just, you'd never think of. Like just, just the idea you've got to build an entire HR department at a time like this just to actually hire the people that you need to wait tables and work behind a bar. It, you just, you'd never dream of it. Uh, but but it, we're getting there, you know, and, and uh, you know... <sighs> Because we've spent the last uh, nearly two years now wondering whether we would be allowed to actually open our doors or not, um, you know, that's a problem we can't solve. Being allowed to open or not, that's a problem we can't solve. This is a problem we can solve. Mm. It's in it, the ball's in our court. It's our responsibility. We will find ways to solve it, and with our team, we are. And before we move on, Andy, I thought I'd get your perspective on the business environment as it stands today. Uh, as you know, when you especially look at the past 24 months, there's quite sort of a, an anti-business style of leadership that comes through in, in some quarters, be they you know, from a local government or council perspective or from particular state governments with restrictions around you know, planning, licensing, constant taxes and the like. What do you make of the environment at the moment? And in an ideal world, what, what would you want to see more from government or from council in terms of actually encouraging enterprise? Yeah, look, I think I'm a, I'm an eternal optimist, mate. So, uh, so I, I do put an optimistic lens on this. But I think one of the one of the experiences of COVID is that the public, who generally I sense in Australia are relatively apolitical, um, as in if we didn't have um, compulsory voting, I think we'd have pretty similar voting numbers to to where the US sits. To be honest, yeah. um, that you know we're an optimistic pretty good lifestyle and we, we'd rather probably not hear from, from <laughs> politics or politicians. And that's, that, that's not a judgment of them, that's just how we are. Mm-hmm. Um, but this has really forced that engagement. I think it's forced people to, to consider the power of, of again, I'm, I'm not political on this, this is, this is just whether you agree with what the state um, government or the federal government, um, their role in, in managing COVID. The point is to be engaged. You know, a, a lot of people overseas would, would die for the right to vote and have and will continue to do um, this year and into the future. So for me, um, I'm, a, I'm a free market um, 
thinker and believer. I'd rather sort of uh, I'd rather um, uh, politics that are market um, regulated rather than big government. Um, having said that, I've, I'm a I'm a passionate um, I'm a passionate believer in. Um, in the health and wellness of a, of a community, society, city, country. So uh, my personal belief is that business has built Melbourne and business has built Victoria and specifically in this city. And let's be honest, you don't, you don't fly into Melbourne for the beaches. There are a couple of nice beaches. We've probably you know, we've got a few. But, um, but you're coming in for those touch points that we haven't been able to touch. And those things are arts, entertainment, hospitality, sport, um, culture, um, the the outdoor life, uh, the tourism that resides in the regions, the wineries. Now, they're all the ones that got smashed the hardest. So what I would have liked to have seen from federal and state, regardless of – I mean, they're too liberal and labour, so we're, we're, we're having a crack at both here – is to acknowledge that uh, the businesses and business people that risk it all every day to build this city and who always did risk it to build this city, just go and look in Flinders Lane. Look at the risk that's in there. Look at the optimistic risk that, that people um, in our industry have built to make sure that when you go to work at lunchtime, you've got the world's best restaurants with the world's best produce available to you. That's something to protect. And I, I feel on both, on both sides of the political um, divide, that wasn't acknowledged and still probably to this day isn't acknowledged. So, so in, ter- in terms of where I think that sits, I'd r- much, much rather see all politicians seed back into the shadows and, and play a smaller government role because you cannot suffocate uh, Melbournians by thinking that you can control when they go outside their door, um, how long they can, who can come into their homes. In the end, um, I, w- I was... I w- my family and, and I, we, we jump straight into vaccinations. The amount of other stuff you put in your body every single day just by walking down the street, um, you know, a, a proven vaccine that's already had 5 billion people, uh, you know, um, vaccines uh, delivered. That was an issue for me. But, but the reason is because I didn't want to get sick and I wanted to go to the pub and I wanted to go to, to, to a, a, live, a live gig and a theatre. So to me, it's personal responsibility. If, if you don't want to do that, um, you have to bear the consequences of that. And, um, and that's okay. So uh, that's a that's a long answer to saying that uh, I think I think we've learned a lot, but I think we have to now play that, engage in that role. Where, where's your vote going and why? Not just because your dad voted that way or your mum's your mum's uncle's a, a politician. Really, wh- what are you doing with that vote um, at, across both divides, Liberal and Labor, and Independents and Greens? So I want to <laughs> get in trouble with that one, money. Hell no. no. <laughs> <laughs> now I want to uh, I want to go back to the year two thousand. I believe it was when you, both of you, you two guys, and Doug and Tom, uh, launched Sandhill Road Group. You you quit your sort of nine to five jobs in a mixture of sort of marketing and finance. I think one of the one of the other guys had you know hospitality experience, but you launched the business. Walk me through sort of uh, the first venture, which was the commercial club hotel in in Fitz. Roy, you took over the lease for that. What happened next? Yeah, well, we were all we, we were all like 24, 25-ish. I think Tom, Tom might have been 23, you know, so relatively young in the scheme of things. And yes, hey, hey mate, is it just Tom was 10 years older than my daughter. Oh, wow. that's, wild. <laughs> that's wild. That's, wild. that's, wild. that's yeah. crazy. That's what crazy. were we thinking? What was he? We thinking? weren't thinking, which was great. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and Dougie, who was one of my best mates, uh, he, he had turned his mind to the idea of. Uh, running a pub one day, and so he gone and got a got a job 
uh, at ALH pulling beers and slowly working his way up through management, just learning, learning, learning. Andy and Tommy were in finance, I was in marketing and PR. And, uh, and Dougie started chatting to each of us in turn about the things that we knew well, he, the things that he thought we might have known <laughs> about, about business. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and obviously we faked it just enough for him to think, ah, oh, you know what? Oh. So eventually we all said, well, actually, if you're going to do this and, and we all want to try something ourselves and we'd all, all, we'd all wanted to, you know, it, it, I think for whatever reason in our guts, we'd all thought that working for ourselves, entrepreneurial uh, spirit was probably the way for us. And, and you know, a couple of years in the workforce had, probably prove that to each of us and so so uh, we hijacked Dougie's so dream <laughs> yeah. we didn't ask him permission he didn't invite us but it just turned out that 20, 22 years later here we are we, we, were, we were in pubs with him so yeah we bought that first pub and we, we didn't have any money so when I say we bought the first pub we had to go through a bit of a process to be able to buy it and and um you know it's not it's not easy now or then to think you can buy anything without any money. And so what we what we had to do was find a way to get the funds to buy the first pub. So we ended up basically selling a chunk of our company to a bunch of family and friends and, uh, you know, like shareholdings in the vicinity of, you know, 1000 or $2,000 or $4,000. Uh, I think the maximum might have been like eight or something to like 30 mates. And... And that was the that was the seed capital that we we had the most over engineered business plan. Rob, like <laughs> this little corner, tiny little pub in Fitzroy, <laughs> we had a like six hundred page business plan. <laughs> and then, um, but but l- little did we know, and it's only now that this is this is relevant. We were crowdfunding. Yeah. So we didn't we didn't the, the internet still hadn't was Hotmail was still the sort of the internet back then. You know that was as advanced as things were. And um, I, don't, I don't think Netscape, I don't think any of that had happened back in 1999. And we started this process in 98 in terms of the planning for, the, for, for doing yep. clubs. So we crowdfunded. Um, but little did we know off the back of that, when you crowdfund something, uh, a business that you own a piece of in Mexico from Australia, you don't have much access to it. In this case, most of our, um, all our shareholders were our mates and they were 24, 25 years old as well. And whether they owned a third of a percent or 5%, they owned a pub. So we're sat, we had the best marketing uh, voice in, in Melbourne. It was, it was phenomenal to yeah, think that's, a, that's how it worked. And then yeah. of those, of those uh, we, had, we had like seven or eight rooms upstairs. And through that time of those two years of the commercial club, we had 17 different people living with us upstairs. So people would move in or out for a month or two. Yep. Some would just stay for a couple of nights randomly. Uh, others of us, um, I think I think Tommy and Matt stayed, Tom stayed the whole way through, yep. right the way through for two years. So it was just a lot of fun. We lived up there with, um, yeah, with a great group of people and uh, a lot of mice. <laughs> um, one massive tub of mayonnaise that no one ever knew how it got there or what it did there, but it was just there. So it was a lot of fun, um, and that was uh, that was our first experience of business, which which tested all the theories we still operate to today. I think all go back to the commercial club, and along the way, I reckon we veered off to our detriment at times by either becoming too corporate, too commercial, too serious, not serious enough. Uh, but all of it comes back to that little pub in Fitzroy. Um, yep. the, sitting here in the SP today. Um, I see more of the Commercial Club Hotel here than I do see in any of our other venues. Wow. Um, and it's uh, it's sort of a full circle journey yeah. on that one, isn't it? Yeah, it was, in, it was there in that first pub that we, uh, you know, as, as a partnership, we learned to be partners. So, you know, it's an enormous challenge, as anyone listening will will know. 
who's ever had a partner. It, you know, it, it's incredibly challenging um, to form a partnership and then to have that partnership sustain over over years uh, as pressures come and go. Lots of conflict. It started off too when we thought we'd be better off for the, for the for everyone to know that we were just all one family, so we asked the boys to change their names. They wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Doug Mullins and Tom Mullins, but that, that, that didn't work. But no, we did. There was, a, there, was a lot of, there was a lot in that forming, storming, norming, performing sort of graduation of group dynamics. There was a lot of that work was done um, in the in the commercial club. And what was the original vision? So you you knew you didn't want to sort of work in nine to five jobs and you knew you wanted to sort of own your own pub. But had you had previous experiences where you'd walked into pubs and thought, oh, we could do this better than them? Or did you feel like pubs were underutilised or did you see something? Or was it just sort of a a dream that that came about and and just eventuated? We we saw, sorry, we saw a lot of gaps in hospitality in Melbourne, but it was only via that was crystallised by saying we're going to own a pub and we're going to, we're going to do some things differently. So it wasn't like a – it was always Doug's dream, you know, from, from being sort of a young, young, younger guy leaving school, hospitality, was really passionate about it. Ours really crystallised around the idea of saying, but, but why – I mean, it, for example, the commercial club when we bought it had a ladies' lounge and they were serious. That was the ladies' lounge. This is 1999, 2000. Um, there was no work done in, on design and nobody was designing pubs. You know, that, that, that was all yet to come. Um, there was no focus on the guest experience. So what, does it, what should it sound like, smell like, taste like? What should it look like? And those, those were questions that were just gaping. And once we, once we came around that idea we, and we saw it, it seemed so obvious. But Dougie's, one of the first things he did was, um, was the beer wars were going on at the time between Lion, Nathan and Carlton. And they were really savage. Like they were... They were they were pretty brutal at the time. It was a very New South Wales Sydney thing, wasn't it? It was a, a sort of New South Wales Victoria thing, mm-hmm. and it was it was it was pretty messy and clumsy too from our perspective. So we didn't want any part of it. So Dougie um, blacked out all our beer tap handles. They were all black. There was no signage at all. <laughs> there was no decals. There was no advertising in the in the venue. And his theory was really simple: was that if we want to do hospitality, we've got to talk to our customers and to make them talk to us they have to ask us questions what do you got on tap and once we've got that question away we can start to sell them what we what we can offer them and then sell them um new ideas so th- this stuff was that first pub opened without um beer, no, no beer signs no billiard table no tv and no um palmer now wow. think about that in melbourne at the time that was that was corporate commercial suicide but that was that's where we started ideas like that yeah and then next came so so the first pub, the commercial club hotel, was a, a success. How long did it take after that for the sort of second and third and fourth venues to come along? Being, I think it was Richmond Club Hotel, then Holly Arva, then the Loft. Yeah, uh, not quite the order, but very close. Yeah, but right. um, but but Holly Arva, no Loft first, then Holly Arva. But uh, like inside of a year, we wow. were we were working on the next thing. But we, we went through we went through a process first where. We had to agree that we actually wanted to do it again with each other, and that you know, looking back now, that feels like a natural thing, and of course we were, but but it wasn't that natural at all. We 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 were we were still learning so much about business, about hospitality, about each other, about the, just the nature of partnership. Um, that you know, there were some testing times, and we were completely broke as well. It, it wasn't like we were making the. Nah. It, wasn't, it wasn't like the commercial club was was we were falling so far behind our friends and peers, so far behind. So while while they were off, um, you know, travelling overseas for two weeks, we were you know we were in a mice ridden pub 
and were getting $100 a week, which was then spent straight back into the pub, basically. <laughs> yeah. So it, yeah. it's not like, as much as we were learning about it, it's not like it was an instant success. It just wasn't. We, we made enough. Um, we That transaction, uh, when we sold um, the commercial club, that, no, so I was just selling the beer rights in the end. We did sell the yeah. beer rights. Yeah. That paid everyone back 153% of their investment. So we had that clearer conscience now to say, right, everyone's got their money back and 53% more. So that, that seemed like, like a success. But that wasn't us because we didn't put money in. We put work in. So we didn't get – we didn't see that pay. So we were still – it's a long story, but two cars repossessed from out the front of the mm. <laughs> commercial club. Yeah. But we weren't, we weren't getting to go, you know, big skiing holidays and stuff like that, our mates. We just didn't get to do that. So I think the harder part was, was saying if we're, if we're in this together and we're going to do it together, we better get more serious about how this is going to work in our lives. Um, we're all ambitious people. And sitting in a mice-ridden um, pub upstairs uh, wasn't 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 <laughs> our idea of, of having made it. So it was that the loft that then rolled into it was a function room called the loft first that we built, and then we realised that we were going to fail at functions, so we quickly turned into a nightclub. <laughs> as soon as we could, we sold it, and we sold the commercial club too. And that's when I think we met Andrew. Andrew came in to finance. Um, he gave us a hundred and thirty thousand dollars loan to do Holly Ava, and suddenly we're away, and uh, and then. Holly over into Richmond Club with Andrew's financial backing, so we weren't going through banks. We were able to act, to act really, really quickly. We had a fantastic accountant in a guy called Kip Harding, a great lawyer in Graham Johnson. So by that stage, we paid out the early investors. We'd moved on those two first projects that contained a lot of our DNA but a lot of our mistakes as well. Yep. Um, and then we had the support network, a fantastic accountant who believed in us, a great lawyer who was the Grand Prix lawyer. He was, he, was, he was a really amazing guy. And we had Andrew Luck, who was our bank. And Andrew, um, when we started to really get moving, so Richmond Club into Bridge, into Posty, um, into then the bigger, the Garden State, the, the SB, that's because um, we would find an idea, quickly coalesce around. And for every one that we did, there was... 10 or 12 others that we didn't do yeah. because something was wrong with them. But, for example, the Garden State Hotel, we inspected that lease, called Andrew, who hadn't seen it, said, uh, we said we think it's about 10 mil, which became about 13 in the end. And uh, Andrew said, if you really believe in this, guys, um, I'm with you. So that's that's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that, that, and that to me, and, and, you know, Andrew's terrific, but he believed in something too. He saw something that was unique for him. He's... Andrew's background's um, sort of more ASX world, yeah. um, chairman, CEO of companies. Right. So he saw something in there that, that, that he recognised that we probably didn't even know, that we've got the fundamentals here to succeed. And, um, and, and that's, how it, that's how it stepped up. Each, each time we did something, we wanted to do it better than the last time, which meant more debt, but it meant more, more reward. And, um, and that that's sort of all came back to that decision we made back in um, at the Commercial Club Hotel. Are we in this or not? Yep. And it must be said that I, on or around about 2008, there was also a period of Sandhill Road pictures. Tell me about the uh, the move into the sort of film production. Andrew and I in particular had always been involved in uh, in arts, in theatre, in writing at about that same period, sort of, you know, 2005-2006, through our father, uh, Michael. We, we also met um, a guy who would become, you know, one of our lifelong best friends and he was best man at his wedding for instance and and um his name was russell smith he's an aboriginal man and we went and met him in um 
in Port Augusta in South Australia and became... Well, in fact, we met him earlier than that. We, we met him at, uh, I think, the Evelyn, was it, in Fitzroy? No, I went, from, no, I went to... Um, dad, dad had... Dad had Dad there, was, there, was all, there was always something missing. I knew there was something missing in, in my life and obviously we're brothers, we talked about it a lot. Matt knew there was something missing in, in his... It, this, is, this is not our lives personally. This is about being Australian. What's, where's the link? Why, what am I missing about, about... Like why, for example, I'd go to a rugby game and I'd hear New Zealanders sing their national anthem in, in Maori and English and I'd see the tears streaming down the Maori and, and non-Maori... Um, uh, fans as they're singing arm in arm with strangers. I thought, I don't do that with Advanced Australia Fair. And I want to because I love, I'm so proud of this country. But there was something missing and it hadn't been, that gap hadn't been filled in school. So our education on Aboriginal Australia was, was I mean, pretty much we were taught it in my school that Australia started with Captain Cook. Yeah. You know, that's a little bit crass, but it, it, it's pretty much that's where it started. Um, and that just seemed wrong. That didn't seem right. So, we, Dad knew that we, that we had this passion and he met this um, fellow, Rusty Smith, through, through Rotary and he said, you have to meet this guy. I don't know why, but he's really important. You've got to meet him. So I got his phone number and called him up and um, as, as Rusty always does and as always happens in culture, there is no tomorrow. So I said, oh, I have to meet you. He said, good, tonight. I said, oh, I can't tonight. He goes, tonight's the night. <laughs> and I said, uh, he said, you come down. I'm playing in a bar in, in, uh, in Collingwood. You come down and you, you see me. And I said, oh, okay, done. It's moving quickly. <laughs> and, um, and I said, mate, look, I'll wear a red cap to, to, so you know who I am. Um, and how will I know who you are? He said, oh, I'll be the, I'll be the long-haired black fellow on stage with the didge, mate. I'm sure, I'm sure <laughs> you can work out the rest. But that night we finished the gig and we quickly – he found me in my red cap. We quickly had a, a quick beer and, um, and I said, oh, do you want to lift home? He's leaving all his gear there in his car for the next gig. And I said, do you want to lift home? He said, yep. Yeah. And I walked to this – my um, XF Falcon Ute that Mick Vassell gave me for free yeah, yeah. that you had to start with a screwdriver and the window wouldn't go up or down. So in winter, that was your, you, you had to wear warm clothes. This was winter. And he looked at me, he looked at the car, he looked at me get out the screwdriver, bashed down the window <laughs> and he said, you're a proper black fella, mate. <laughs> and so that was that night, um, that night was, we didn't stop talking till I think about four in the morning, just a um, couple of glasses of red and conversation. He filled the void that I, I knew was there. He filled it wow. to overflowing with. And the, the most beautiful thing he said that's always been our guide is um, as much as – he said, Andy, as much as I've got a, a white history, you've got a black history and you've got every right to access it. So a week later, we're in a car. His band is mm. – he asked Doug, he asked us all, but uh, Doug, Doug and I could make it. We, he said, just be on this street corner. At like four o'clock in the afternoon, we're going to Port Augusta, so through Adelaide. You you can travel with the band. I said, fantastic. So we're we're waiting on the corner at four o'clock, and about six o'clock, we waited two hours. Six o'clock, <laughs> this van rolls up, and the doors open, and just this waft of smoke just comes comes out, and it's it's Rusty's band, which is half Indigenous, half not um, players. And just the rollicking trip across across to Adelaide, and that's where we met Rusty's family, and that was that was the start of a journey that will be a lifelong journey and we try to share it. one of the easiest ways you can share something so profound is through film because you can't get everyone to jump in a van and drive to, to yeah. Port Augusta to, to experience um, Rusty's community and we met, um, we met the most amazing, wonderful, brilliant, beautiful people and that's 20 years ago yep. um, and that's where the film stuff wow. started. Yeah. 
And Matt, what a uh, Andy Andy referred to the Garden State Hotel before. I wanted to sort of get an idea of the the genesis of how that came about. As I understand it, you both travelled, or maybe all of you, I think, travelled to New York to do the marathon oh, in yeah. twenty fourteen. Yeah. And I think what... the marathon did us, by the way. <laughs> just, <laughs> just, just, just to be clear. And what yeah. you saw over there, I mean, you must have seen some inspiration. You brought it back, and then tell us about how the the Garden State Hotel sort of came about. Yeah, and you're talking about the New York Marathon. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, well, well, just prior to that, actually, well, in fact, in the, in the couple of years prior, we we just, you know, back to Andy's, you know, 18-month gap between renovations. So we had a really busy period. So we, we'd, our Richmond Club had burnt down, uh, like, almost to the ground. So we, we had to completely rebuild that. And while we were doing it, a guy called Justin Northrop, who's an architect who we'd done a couple of smaller renovations with in the years prior... He was living and working in New York in, in New York at the time in, in Brooklyn. Yeah, so um, we in like a in like a really early version of kind of um, working from home and working through technology. So this is this is like two thousand eleven ish or something. You know, like a long time ago, two thousand twelve maybe. We designed the Richmond Club with him via rudimentary internet. So we had email, but it wasn't wasn't great. Uh, we were able to. To use one of the early screen sharing, um, you know, systems, so he would work all night, um, well, all of our night, right, all yeah. of his day, and then there was a little gap in the middle where we cross over, where he'd show us the day's work at the start of our day, essentially, um, and and he'd share a screen with us, and we'd all sit around the screen and and you know roll through um, what used to be an analog design process where we'd sit together over drawings and plans, and it had just become a digital version, um, and and so. A lot of what he was seeing and experiencing and photographing and telling us about in his daytimes and nighttimes in New York at the time was being fed into our consciousness, you know, uh, into into in, and certainly into that renovation, into the Richmond Richmond Club renovation. And then that that flowed over the next few years through our relationship with Justin. We we designed and built the Bridge Hotel, you know, the, that big that big bustly laneway through a pub, mm-hmm. um, the Paran Hotel um, and the Terminus Hotel. And then and then we were looking for... So we had these, these successful mid-size um, inner suburban pubs, you know, Richmond, Paran, Abbotsford. And we... We had had the loft in the city, so we had we had a sense of what business was like in the city, and we quite liked it. But you know, there just aren't many pubs in the city. Like oddly enough, Melbourne's CBD has got so few pubs, and those that were there once operating have all, you know, with the exception of only literally a handful, yeah. they've all been converted into apartments or um, office towers, or they've just been knocked down sadly. So uh, it wasn't like we could we could go and find a thousand person pub somewhere in Melbourne <laughs> and you know, and maybe buy it. And renovate it like that didn't exist so but 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 we had a really strong sense that if we took the richmond club paran terminus kind of model a model incidentally that that kind of got remodeled and rebuilt and then rebooted during the gfc from sort of 2009 that sort of period when um when when what had been a, a real move towards high end and luxury in f and b so you had the advent of you know, like, like places like Eau de v, uh, sorry, well, Eau de v being one example, actually a, a, an amazing world-class cocktail bar, but, but Vieux de Monde being yeah. like, like the, the apiothesis of, of a, like just a, just a world-class restaurant on the top of a tower. 
in the city, right? And, and that tells you everything you need to know about where F&B was going in that era. Like it was all going to the top. And, you know, everything was being judged by a comparison to that sort of food, that sort of cocktail, that sort of wine list, that sort of service, right? And it was, exqui- it was exquisite, right? It was amazing. But it wasn't for everyone by any means. It wasn't for every operator by any means. And it, it was out of, the, out of reach of so many people. But it was something that everyone was aspiring to. And then the GFC hit and the top end got wiped out, right, in stark contrast to the pandemic when the bottom got wiped out and the top just flew, right? GFC was the reverse. So the, the top just got destroyed. So high-end high end fine dining, just it just almost disappeared in the space of a year or two. And, um, and Australians were looking for value options and for simpler, humbler nights out and occasions. And so, you know, it was amazing timing for us because that was us. Like, we were community pubs, you know, inner city, um, old buildings that had been renovated but, you know, not not flashy, not dizzy, not, you know, not OTT, just, just cool, fun, exciting places to hang and really simple value offers, you know, like, like simple beers, on tap, uh, great simple pub food, um, done well, served well, all those, all those things, all those fundamentals were, you know, were sold. But in the end, it was value, right? And that's what the world wanted then. So, and we just renovated, or were about to renovate and open, you know, like four or five really good, honest pubs. And so the timing was great for us. And we we just sensed that that the CBD was missing missing something like that as well and there, there was potential to do that on a slightly larger scale in the city if we found the right place so we went hunting and you know again couldn't go just, just couldn't walk into pubs and say this is it because there were none of them no thousand person pubs in in the cbd so we we had to find a way to build a pub but you needed the right kind of building you know we didn't want to put it at the bottom of a new development um, because that you know that that's that's not really a pub um so we had to find an old building, ideally an existing liquor licence and permit. So the process of you know getting a new thousand-person pub in the CBD at the time was you know that that was impossible. So you know as in getting it permitted and licensed wasn't going to happen from scratch. And it, and and then the, what what had been known as um, Rosati, which was you know magnificent old Italian style, like a tra- Italian train station style, um, sort of multi-function restaurant uh, but laid out over one floor basically um, in Flinders Lane. Uh, it had shut some years earlier and it had sort of been open and closed occasionally but at the time it was being used for pop-up retail and um, most of us in the industry knew that the old Rosati was kind of there and that if someone wanted the old restaurant maybe you know you could open a restaurant there and, and it went round and round the circles for quite a while and no, no, one, was, no one was up for it. For whatever reason, it just it just didn't grab anyone, and um, and and we we finally had a little look at it, having passed a few times, and eventually um, went in there and and still thought, oh, you know, like a big restaurant, it's just it's just not us. And then it was only over a couple of days that we started digging a bit deeper, and we're like, well, okay, it's always been a restaurant, it's kind of is a restaurant now, albeit closed. But it doesn't have to be. It was totally irrelevant to the market now too. That, that was that, those days were so they were so far gone that no one even knew. It was sitting at the back of one on Collins, and no one even knew it was there. Yeah, yeah. But in in the end, once we dug a bit deeper, we're like, well, hold on a second. It, it's got an existing liquor license. 
which is a rare thing, uh, and a large one. It's got an existing permit, which is also a rare thing, um, although that needed to be tweaked and adjusted, but still it was there. Uh, and it's a beautiful old building, and it's on Flinders Lane. Holy shit. Like, this could be a pub. It doesn't have to be a restaurant, just because it always has been. This could be a pub. And, uh, and again, looking back now, it's obvious. Of course it's a pub. Like, anyone who walks into the Garden State Hotel goes, yeah, it's a pub. <laughs> well, it's always been a pub, hasn't it? Like, nah. Nah, mate. No, 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 no. Nah. It's, uh, it, it hasn't always been a pub. So um, we, we, again, just went back to the basics and started, started as we always do, um, we sit down with a bunch of plans and drawings and pencils and, and um, whiteout and, and tracing paper and just, just dream up. What Is could it, happen in a place like that? That was sort of um, at the other venues are like extra, still still the Bridge Hotel still, still blows my mind. We built a lineway through the middle of the pub. I love it. It's fantastic. But this was a bit of a step up in um, less less humble. This was the sort of aspirations we had here was, hey, this is one of the best hospitality cities on earth. It doesn't have a pub that could rival you know some of the Sydney and Brisbane pubs you know that are that yep. are just epic in scale and and that was a risk in itself too because we thought hang on does melbourne we love to be tucked away into the laneways and small spaces and basements and and is it going to work so that was there was a lot of risk in that in going so big but we'd also learned after what 16 17 18 years in in pubs um that little venues are often more trouble than big venues and big venues are more dangerous because of the risk profile but the benefits the upside in the, in the in the pnl is just you know the scale of what you could do from say the difference between the posty and the garden state you might not spend any less time managing the two of them in, in ter- from a, from an ownership level because there'll be you know, little venues can be really really fiddly and hard to hard to manage so i think that the risk that we sat around, Maddie pretty much sketched for us um, when we were just in the um and ah stage, hadn't shown off, spoken to Andrew yet. This, Maddie pretty much sketched in our office uh, on the whiteboard. Look, this is what I think it could look like, and oh, I wish we had photos of that sketch because mm-hmm. it's pretty much exactly what it is wow. today. And we've gone through a lot of different with with Techno and Jazzy, a lot of different options, but it's pretty much is 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 that that original sketch. The problem, the question then was. Will Melbourne buy into? Do we behave the same way the Sydney and Brisbane markets, Perth markets do with outdoor, big scale? Um, and the answer is no. We never had before. The people have tried some 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 larger format venues in Melbourne, but um, but no one had really succeeded and put something on the map. So that was a massive risk in in trying to in trying to do that. And that was when the conversation came in with Andrew really quickly. He saw Matt. Well, I said, mate, Matt sketched this thing. You got to see it. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> and um, he said, I don't need to see it. That's that sounds good. Let's do it. And so then we, we we went to the landlords and, and secured it, and um, and then had to build it. So how do you build a five level pub in the middle of the city with nobody noticing that you built it? And the answer was, um, you're coring out the enormous basement, so turning it into basically a skin. And then we had trucks that would come and park in there at seven o'clock at night inside with excavators. And they'd be loaded up overnight, and they'd get out at you know five, five in the morning before yeah. the city stirs. So no one, literally, by the time we and the, the whole thing was hoarded up. So by the time we opened Garden State, a lot of the feedback was, "I was this always here?" Because mm. I didn't see you building it, and we didn't. We built it from the inside out. 
That's it's pretty, it's pretty, mm. pretty good fun. Yeah. And there's no doubt that it's become a, a, a landmark and an icon in Melbourne. As you said, it rivals anything that you'd see in, in Sydney or Brisbane or around the world for that matter. The other one that I wanted to ask you about, and there's, there's lots that we could sort of talk about in between, but is, of course, the Hotel Esplanade where we're uh, seated here this morning. Tell me about... I mean, this, this obviously would have been a different project to something like that. It was an existing pub. You obviously had to go through quite a lot of sort of heritage elements, the history of it, wanting to keep the original structure and, and look and feel of it. Tell me about how this came into the ownership of Sandhill Road Group. the SP is not an existing pub. It's the existing pub. <laughs> <laughs> like it is, it is the most existing pub in the world, you know. Like there's just – there's something unbelievable in the DNA of this building that, that is replicated in the DNA of every Melbourneian mm-hmm. and a lot of Australians beyond Melbourne as well. There's hey, you, just something you, special. Can I jump in here just to start this part of the chat? Um, to pay our respects to, uh, to to Dougie Maskell here. Dougie, um, so ALH once owned the SB. Right. It wasn't the most glorious period of ownership, but Dougie um, had grown up sort of down, down Bayside Way and, um, and the SB was everything to him. It was, of all of, all of us, this, this just meant so much to him, this pub. And we all loved it. We all spent whole weekends here. Uh, saw so many gigs here, you know. It had such great Sunday sessions watching Sunset. But to Doug, this, this was kind of like... If pub building was like climbing Everest, this is Everest. So this is the most technically um, dangerous. You need years and years and years of experience behind you to do it and and you need to have a passion that says you might die. So <laughs> so in, in our case, the, you might die is you've worked for 18, 19 years to build Sand Hill Road. It's all on the line and we promised our wives we wouldn't do that. We promised them after Garden State we're not going to do anything that big again. This is so much bigger. But just to go to Dougie, Dougie had um, applied for the assistant manager job here and, and that was his dream when he was a kid and didn't get it. And so for him to come back and own it, it's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a beautiful I – just, I just love that. Uh, and he's the most humble bloke I, I think I've ever met in my life. So, uh, he, so he, 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 Ironically, he's now half a chance of getting an assistant manager job here at the SB. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, anyone can walk in right now and get a job at any pub in the country. So, uh, but, yeah. but this had sat here, this had sat here for a long time. It wasn't the first pass we had at it. We, we, we'd looked, tried to do the maths. We'd, we, it made everybody nervous because it's not just the size of it and to refit. It was, it was in a completely de- demolished state. So it was halfway through a, a, a renovation from, from the previous owners. Um, it was empty. It had been closed for two, two and a half years. It was, it was the, such a, probably the saddest building in Melbourne. And so to want to have that mantle to take on its, its history, its legacy... To, there's only one way you can do the SP, which is to stuff it up. And how many people told us that, Matty? Like, yeah. Locals, ex-SP people, music industry people, industry industry people, suppliers. You guys are mad. So it wasn't a lay down to, 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 to do this. No, nah, but it was it, – it, it had been – the SP is the holy grail for any publican, you know, in, in, a, in a, a while in Victoria at least. You know, so for every one of the 20 years that, we, that we'd been – We've been publicans, so every one of the eighteen years uh, until to that point, we dreamt of owning the SP one day, uh, and and hope that if in mean, a fantasy world though, yeah, like, totally, like, yeah, as, yeah, as if yeah, you could yeah, ever do yeah, it, yeah. yeah. But that's the holy grail, right? It, like it, it's a crusade that is so un, so unlikely and so improbable, but nonetheless, it, you know, it's it's out there, and you dream about it, you know, and um, and so we we got the word, oh, probably twenty. 16, 17, we got the word from the owners at the time that, that, that they were thinking about 
moving on. Uh, but you know, it, was either, it was either move on or do a big renovation and hold for the rest of their, of their careers. And so we came and chatted to the guys about it. And they're lovely blokes and we still know them really well now. And, um, and we ummed and about it. At the time, we had the Garden State rolling. So we're like, oh, geez, well, we're doing the Garden State for sure. We're, we're, in, we're in there. That's happening. Um, oh, God, can you believe it? It's either now or never. Oh. But, but it, and when we said no. Uh, it, it, it just that wasn't the time. We just didn't have the, cap- the capability, the capacity. So we said no, but we're, we're really, 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 really sad about that fact. And then a couple of years later, the guys had started the renovation here at the SB, but they were they were just moving through it really slowly, and um, and I think probably it had stalled a little bit, and they probably lost a little bit of the the the, the joy of of the of the job, and. The Garden State mine then was up and running and rolling along pretty well. And so we came back and, and said, listen, guys, hey, what are you thinking? What are your plans? Are you still open to the idea and is it too late? And they said, no, it's not too late. Let's talk. Obviously, we're halfway through a renovation here, but, you know, sure. So, I mean, they were two and a half years in to the renovation then and uh, and we knew that it would if we were to buy it, it would be years before we were able to open the place because, um, you know, just the planning process, the building process would take, well, years um but in the end we we managed to get it done so we were able to buy the buy the place here from from them and set about well the, 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 the other big the other big change that happened via the sp is that the freehold was available mm-hmm. and that's a game changer for us we'd never owned a freehold aside from our office but we we're back to where we were 20 years ago we didn't have the money so uh, we were discussing this. Um, Tommy and uh, and Andrew in particular were discussing different models of financing, funding. How could you do it? And the one that we settled on completely changed our lives um, because uh, Andrew uh, joined us as a partner. So Andrew bought into the business as a full and equal partner. So we went from four to five and. He and his wife Polly, um, who've just backed us from from day one, so it was probably the ultimate backing is to say, "Wow, this guy's this guy's actually coming in as a partner." That freed up, um, but in order for him to do that, for for us to do it again, all the all the modelling that Tom was was running through at the moment said, "Freehold, freehold, freehold." We've got to start buying freeholds because we were spending millions on other people's properties. Mm. increasing, of course, the value of the asset, but then also with a great big business, increasing the rents on ourselves. Mm. So it, was, it, was, <laughs> it didn't make sense to keep doing that. And, um, and Andrew joined as a partner, which precipitated at the same time because we did buy the Waterside and the Waterside and Waterside Freehold were in the same conversation of how could you take significant um, uh, freeholds uh, free and how could you create then significant businesses on them? And that, what would that do to the multiple of the of the land um, value? And again, this is all the numbers that, that Tom and Andrew were running and they just kept saying, do it. Um, but every bit of modelling was saying, do it. So we did. Andrew bought in. We bought those. We bought them together pretty much, yep. didn't we? Yep. I think we same bought time. them at the same time. Um, and, uh, and away we went. Yeah. Full, fully loaded with, fully loaded with debt. And <laughs> but at the same time, as Andrew came in as a partner too, we really got a far more senior banking relationship with CBA. Uh, we switched across from ANZ to CBA and that really opened up um, yeah, a lot of opportunity for us as well. So um, at that point, there was no reason to say no to this um, and we 
got the girls together. We didn't even use an agent, did we? In this? No. I think we just did it directly with Vince no. and Paul. Yeah. And then I'll never forget, we got the girls into the Gershwin room and um, had a had a champagne and the, the two boys, the previous owners, don't, don't drink but had a, had a soft drink with us. Mm-hmm. And um, when we signed the documents with them, um, Vince said uh, really, in a really loving way but with a bit of a sort of a, a, a foretelling, he said, boys, um, as much as you've bought the, the SB, you'll never own it. And that was... That really became our guide, didn't it? Mm. To absolutely wide consultation, even with people yeah. that 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 were angry. We were even you know suggesting doing yeah. um, the SB. Like, how dare you? It was, it was, a, it was a big <laughs> section. So yeah. we had to build consensus over weeks and months with every person that lit up on social media about what a bunch of wankers we were and, and how dare you touch the SB. And and people was, people had forgotten too. The legend of the SB was more than its recent. So. Yeah. There had been a long time since, since, you know, no one had seen upstairs. No, unless you're a manager, no one had seen upstairs. Um, no one, had, no one, I'd say, including the managers, had seen what was on the next level yeah. above. Um, you know, there was there was a lot about the SB that that, and this is why Vincent Paul, um, they had a good relationship with Dougie and very much sort of chose us, if that makes sense. Mm. They were, they weren't going to hand it to anyone. Yeah. Um, over uh, just for money, it was it had to be what we're going to do with it. So our, our approach for that was we had to go right. And Maddie, um, you just obsessed yourself basically with 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 this build. And yep. well before you got drawing with Juzzy, it was I do tend to obsess myself. You do get a bit obsessed. Actually, on the opening night here, we'd lost him so completely in the story of Alfred Felton. He'd he'd gone so deep, Rob, into. I mean. You, you've got to give that uh, the one minute story of who Elton is, but Felton was. But we lost him so deeply that we got rusty going back to Russell Smith because I came and did a, a welcome here in acknowledgement country. And Rusty said, Hey, brother boy's not looking too good. He's, he's like a ghost. I said, Well, we told him a story about Ghost of Elton. And he goes, um, he goes, You bring him up here before before we do the opening tonight. You bring him up here upstairs, just just you and the boys and some stuff. And so Maddie, we got him up there. Maddie, uh, Maddie Russell laid him down. In the bar, the ghost of Alfred Felden, yeah. and um, and played Digo Room just to bring his spirit back. Well, wow. it was it was Very pretty it was that. pretty wild, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, amazing stuff. But Alfred, <laughs> mate, you, you, you got you got to give the, uh, the, the the quick story here, mate, is that um, so the back when you know back back um, from eighteen fifty on when the gold rush hit in Victoria and, and you know Melbourne Victoria became you know like the gold rush place on earth you know the biggest gold rush in the history of the world and uh so melbourne just exploded st kilda became melbourne's luxury seaside resort town basically and you know there's amazing hotels and houses and mansions started popping up along fitzroy street in this part st kilda road uh, and uh, and an, an amazing businessman called alfred felton arrived in 1853 as a 20 year old man built a great business um, selling hardware to miners in those first few years of the gold rush and then built an even bigger business as a pharmacist, and he teamed up with a guy called um, F.S. Grimwade of, you know, Melbourne Grammar Grimwade House, you know, an important um, family in, in in Melbourne's history. And Felton, unlike Grimwade, they never married, never had children. And um, Felton ended up moving into rooms here in the ESPY in 1891 and opened those rooms up. Uh, fully renovated them, lived here until wow. his death in 1904. He died here. He died here in, in, his, in his bedroom here in the hotel in 1904, one of the richest men in the country. And when he died, uh, it, it shortly thereafter became known um, what he had decided to do with all that money, not having any family and children. And he, he decided to give the first half to local charities supporting women and children 
Now, I mean, just think how far ahead of your time, you know, 904, to, to make that decision, right? Like it was, mm. it was unheard of in the, history, in the history of the world. And the second, uh, even more unusual, um, no more impressive, but certainly more unusual, the second half he gave to our small, little, humble National Gallery of Victoria, which had a few paintings and a couple of sculptures in it <laughs> up until that moment. In that moment, the NGV became the best endowed gallery on earth more money to go out and buy paintings and sculptures and works of art than any gallery in the world. More than wow. the British National Museum and the Tate combined. So when a great <laughs> work of art came on the market in, say, London or Paris or New York um, over the next 50 years or so, we could just go buy it. And we did. And so we amassed one of the world's great art collections, thanks to Felton. So the NGV's art's worth $4 billion today. Felton's bequest bought three billion of the four. Wow. Three billion dollars <laughs> worth of art this man bought for us. And and so it's no surprise that you know we, we often wonder how it is that Melbourne became the sort of artistic and um, and cultural capital of the country, uh, if indeed it still is, and, and we firmly believe that it is, despite all it's been through the last two years. Um, and the F and B capital as well, and one of the great capitals of the world. And in no small part it's because, you know, back in nineteen oh four um, we became the national gallery in the country um, and one of the great galleries in the world and we just started attracting artists and arts administrators and then other artists like singers and dancers and, and cinematographers and poets and, and writers. And, 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 and then, you know, then, then a city that's full of artists starts attracting winemakers and baristas. It's an incredible and, legacy. Yeah, 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 and it didn't happen by accident. Amazing. Um, and, and the man lived and died right here and dreamt up this extraordinary, you know, like literally, literally um, first ever wow. bequest here in the hotel. It's incredible. It's, um, it's sort of r- rounding out to where we, where we started, Rob, but i still got mates who, who say, why, why do you do it? Like what's, what drives you guys to, to do it? And it is, just hearing Matt talk, talk through that, it is, it's not money. It is to build something that lasts beyond our lifetimes. So to, if, if ever, who knows, who knows who's going to own the SB when I'm long gone in 100 years' time. But we'll know that it was not open, it was broken, it was pretty sad. Um, and our time had come to, to, to step up and shape, you know, to, to reclaim, I guess, not just for Melbourne but for St Kilda as well. Yeah, St Kilda's had some rough times. So to be, to be part of that, to leave that sort of legacy in the smallest, humblest, tiniest way that, that a guy like Felton did, um, it's, uh, it's, it's more than sort of – it's a privilege. To, to do it. And it's a privilege to sit here in his rooms. Absolutely. Where, where he sat and watched mm. his sunsets as, as he did every day. And yeah, um, yeah it was, it's, it's good fun, but it's, it's got to be something bigger than that as well. Now, I know you've both got a lot on, so just two questions to finish. The first of which I'd be interested to get an understanding of the next chapter of the business. I think, if I, if I recall correctly, the next venue will be the Waterside Hotel, which opens soon. Matt, maybe run us through. It sort of would have opened to... about now. Okay. If we'd, uh, well, in fact, no, sorry, it would have been open for almost a year. Uh, oh, we, wow. we, we started renovations there uh, December, the December prior to the pandemic hitting. Yep. And so by the time we got shut down in March, we'd done demolition. So the hotel is now demolished, but we couldn't rebuild it because obviously, of course, we, uh, we didn't have a business. Um, and, uh, and so we, we just left it to sit there. It's, it's currently a, a big, beautiful, uh, empty shell of a building. And 
interestingly, the the we have a permit and a plan, and we had a and we had builders ready to go. And but but the, the, these two years, the the one well, there'll, there'll be many good things. I think ultimately we'll look back and say, you know, there were great things to come out of this for us, and we already know some of them. But one of the ones we know that was great is that uh, the nearly two years that that pub set there, you know, closed and empty, have been really useful to us as the owners of the pub. So we've we we make decisions we make decisions about what we do with the waterside four years ago when we first bought it, and in, in those four years, uh, you know things have changed a lot. You know the city's changed enormously, so the decisions we were making four years ago were probably right for those years. Um, you know we were planning a pretty humble, pretty simple, pretty pretty unimpressed. Well, it would have been fun, but it, but it, you know, it wasn't a major reworking of the site. Mm. And uh, and we thought we'd probably come back and do that in five, six, seven years' time. But let's just let's just update the thing right now. So that's what we were doing. Um, but as as the years have gone by uh, since we first made those decisions, things have changed, and that part of the city is now evolved really well. King Street is changing really quickly. Um, the worst elements there are starting to die out, which is good news, and better elements are already coming in. The rest of the of the blocks around the waterside are starting to really thrive, and you know that's now becoming the middle of the city genuinely. And so. It's enabled us to, to be a bit more ambitious with our plan. In fact, a lot more ambitious with our plan. So <laughs> We've doubled it, Rob. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we're, and, it, and it's unbelievably exciting for us and for the building, you know, but it's exciting for that part of the city as well because, you know, there's no doubt that, that, that great, you know, like if we can achieve this and that's what we're aiming for, but, but, but truly great, truly world-class hospitality offers in beautiful old buildings like the Waterside are a really important part of what makes a city special. And so, you know, we're, we're unbelievably excited that the Waterside will be you know, our next our next development and that, mm. and that you know, the next pub we open there is going to be something really special, something, you know, genuinely world-class. And uh, and that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Mm. You know, we, we, we would have built a really, really nice pub. Andy, final question for you. I'd be interested to just get a gauge on on what it takes to run a successful hospitality business. I mean, from the outside, there'd be no doubt so, so many people that would look at your business and think, oh, that's the exact the sort of business that I want to own pubs one day. I want to own multiple pub venues and hotel venues. What does it take to, I suppose, run a, you know, part A, run a successful pub and then part B, a successful pub or leisure business like you guys have run? It's a really easy one to answer, mate, because we've we've drilled it into ourselves. Um, particularly, um, Andrew drilled it into us um, over the last twenty years, and it's it's just, it's three things in this order: it's people, systems, and risk management. So, we've just met more and more as we've invested more in people. That is finding the right people. Um, it's not always the best with the most accolades. It's what what person fits in with and can lead and drive our vision, but then ultimately create their own in that, mm. through that. And whether you're a bussy and you're first night picking up glasses or whether, whether, you're, um, whether you're, you're Bianca, who's, um, who's our CEO, um, people. Um, the second one would be systems. And just something Maddie said earlier, I looked at us 20 years ago, what we started with as a system. So we've, we've all of us, anyone listening to you, we've lived through some pretty extraordinary technological advances. So... We've you know, the idea that that there would be something called an iPhone that you'd take photos on and do emails. What's an email? Um, and you'd also do your banking on it. What do you mean do banking? We, we walk up to the telly. Think about what's in that phone line. The, the idea that we used to try to go from A to B, you'd use a Melways or in Sydney a Sidways. How surreal! 
the down, all of that technology sits on your phone. So if you're not updating it and something that, that, that Tom runs um, all of our systems, I look at our systems now in awe mm-hmm. from whether it's onboarding staff through those systems, whether it's the, the BPOS terminals, the security cameras, um, the systems involved and they're constantly being updated. You have to. Um, so, so people systems and then risk. We viewed risk um, not from the conventional understanding of are we over-risked? We'd say are we are we have we got enough risk? Yeah. As in, are we pushing ourselves enough to make it count? And of course, you've got to have a very fine line balancing that. And we've got, you know, to realise, as I said, accountants, lawyers, um, uh, advisors who will sit around and, and will 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 help us make sure that we're not over doing things. We've got. We've got five incredible wives who are... Clearly we're not talking safety and that sort of stuff. We're, we're no, talking, we're talking about, financial. We're talking about business. business. Yes. Yeah. But, but of, course, of course, that all comes into it as well. You know, are, you, are you a safe business? And, and that. So, so people, systems, risk management. Um, and outside of that, you just got to bloody love it. Mm. You know, you can't fake hospitality. Um, you, you can fake some things and, and, and I've got a lot of mates who have to fake it because they're not going to be incredibly passionate about being 20 floors up in the city for 40 years <laughs> I, I get it right yeah. that, that that might have that passion might have died but I genuinely walk in in this place or or any of our venues and and see the people and talk to the people I'm just pumped still and the day that that doesn't happen um don't do another one well, I think that uh, shines through just even sitting here this morning. You're waving at all the staff that go by. Everybody's got a smile on their face. It's, uh, that passion shines through, but just a, a, a fantastic business right across the board and, and two great people to um, to deal with, which is obviously why you've got you know passionate staff as well. Matt and Andy Mullins, absolute pleasure having a chat with you this morning. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Thanks so much, Rob. Good on you, mate.